couple of years ago, I was out with a couple of friends and other mutual friends, more like my friends' friends, so my acquaintances walked into the bar where we were. And one of those acquaintances that says, oh, I've been wanting to talk to you, Jane. I was at a funeral three weeks ago. And I knew a little bit about this friend's history that he'd been raised non-denominational and had totally like walked away from anything really church-related at all. But he said he went to a funeral a few weeks earlier, and it was an Episcopal funeral. And he says to me, when I was there, I was kind of laughing to myself for a moment, thinking, I have a question for Jane. And the question is, do you know that you don't need to read to God? Like, God already knows all of these words and that you don't have to read to God. And I laughed at it because I did actually think it was funny. Um, But my response was, well, I'm pretty sure God doesn't need me to read to God. But I, in some ways, need to read to God. For me, that idea of reading prayers and um, meditations and so on and study as a prayer life hits that part of my heart and soul that has strong memories around reading to children or reading to someone who um, can no longer read for themselves. And I enjoy reading and I look for answers to reading. So reading is a salvific kind of thing for me or salvific maybe too much, a joyful thing for me in a place of connection. And so I feel like I need to read to God. And then the number one thing that always happens is the frequency with which words I didn't know I needed to pray come before my eyes, and it's a bit of a revelation. So that's today's question. So you know, you don't need to read to God. I am the Reverend Jane Gober. I'm the rector of Christ Church in Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, in the Diocese of Pennsylvania. And my guest today is Ben. He is my neighboring, a neighboring priest and usually good at playing along with my crazy adventures in digital technology. So Ben, tell people a little bit about yourself. Yes, I am Ben Wallace. Oh, my religious name is uh, the Reverend Benjamin Gildas, named after the Welsh Saint, Saint Gildas. And I am the rector of Incarnation Holy Sacrament Episcopal Church in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. As you said, your uh, neighbor in ministry not too far down the road from where you are and in the Diocese of Pennsylvania. I'm also uh, a game designer and a prolific online content creator. I don't say the word prolific to brag. I say because like, I feel like I'm constantly endlessly making content uh, for my network called the All Ports Open Network and Apon Games, where I'm a game designer as well. So I wear a lot of different hats. I'm also a brother in a Celtic religious order called the Anamkara Fellowship, which is a religious order in the Episcopal Church with a Celtic spirit. And so I really appreciated the chapter of the book that you and I read to talk about today and uh, because it referenced uh, some Celtic ideas. And I was like, hooray. <laughs> that's always great for me to see. So yeah, that's who I am. Super. Well, like I said, thanks. And the, this is the first episode. And so part of the reason I reached out to Ben for the first episode was he has all this experience in this world of communicating. And so really, he's just like holding my hand along as we make it through these first episodes. I don't know about that. Jane, you are very good at naturally stepping into like 
this kind of stuff. Like you have lots of experience, obviously, but like you would never know you are new at podcasting based on this podcast that we're recording right now. So, uh, you know, it's you might as well be a longtime expert. Cool. I must say that now. I'm a longtime expert. So this is the first episode. And the first episode is about Book of Common Prayer and liturgy, which that sort of sassy question I got asked by a friend connects to of one of the big identifiers. And in some ways, it's the best way to start because it's one of the things for which a lot of Episcopalians, if you were to name why we are distinct, this would be one of the first things you would go to or the two things which are interrelated, the Book of Common Prayer and liturgy. And so we're starting with that. As some of you know, who are listening to this podcast, this podcast, is tied in with the book, Your Faith, Your Life by Jennifer Gamber and Bill Luellis. And in the revised edition, it is chapter eight um, on worship. And so we encourage those of you who want to have a multidimensional learning experience to find that book and take a, take a gander through that chapter. But you also don't have to read that chapter to learn something from this episode of Right Questions. So the big question I put before Ben, and this is like uh, asking someone to, you know, narrow the entire Bible down to two words in some ways, <laughs> um, is on the topic of the Book of Common Prayer and liturgy, thinking about where we are now, what are the three or maybe it's four most important things for someone to know? That's, yeah, it's such a big question. It's interesting though, I hadn't thought about this before when you asked me, but I did think of this just now in the way you happened to frame it just a second ago, which is, you know, is it, it's like asking someone to boil the Bible down to a couple of sentences. And what popped into my head was that I think Paul does a really good job summarizing the gospel when he says um, that in Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to God's self. And I thought, okay, if I was to decide what the way to do the same thing would be for like the Book of Common Prayer. It would probably be something that we say in the baptismal covenant when we make a promise to continue in the apostles' teaching in the fellowship and in the prayers. Because that's kind of how I view the Book of Common Prayer, which is it is our distinctly Anglican way of continuing in the apostles' teaching in fellowship, in the breaking of bread. I left breaking of bread out. That's very important. In the breaking of bread and in the prayers. Like those four things are what I think we see in the prayer book is what, and I say distinctly Anglican because it is our Anglican heritage way of continuing in the apostles' teaching. It's not the only way to continue in the apostles' teaching because we are the um, God's church is blessed to be very diverse and have many expressions and the church doesn't belong to us. It's God's. It's the spirit of God moving among God's people. Uh, but the Book of Common Prayer is like the way that we continue. And it's a very important phrase, the apostles teaching. It's like the apostles hand down that teaching to, in our tradition, we believe to bishops and the bishops continue that tradition today. And we, and so the Book of Common Prayer is one of our emblems of unity in the Episcopal world, it's the way, and that that's like a kind of heady theological way of saying it, but really what that means is that Episcopalians and Anglicans around the world worship in a way that's very similar, whether that's all of us using the same 1979 Book of Common Prayer on a Sunday to worship, or whether that's uh, us all 
uh, or whether that's like our communion, Anglican communion partners worshiping in very, very similar ways in our own versions of the Book of Common Prayer. We have a unifying way of praying on Sundays of worshiping, of celebrating the Holy Eucharist that is rooted in our unique Anglican history. So I didn't think my first answer to your question was going to be that, but I actually think that it's a cool thing for people to remember, which is that the worship we do on a Sunday morning, it's not separate. It's the, it's not separate. It's not like just what I do here at my congregation at IHS in Drexel Hill, or what we even do in these dioceses of Pennsylvania that we happen to be in with our own bishop here. But it's like you, it ties us to, it ties Joe and Sally and Steve on Sunday morning in my pew to the apostles of ages past to the whole church around the world and to our Anglican communion partners and to our rich history of Anglicanism through these words that have been passed down to us. So it's a really rich, the book of common prayer is a rich book full of ancient and modern prayers that unify us together in worship. Just like we believe that celebrating the whole Eucharist on Sundays unifies us with in worship with the whole communion of saints. So that was that's that would probably be my first answer. I I really didn't expect that to be my first answer, Jane, when you asked me. But like the way you phrased it, kind of just brought that out. I think. So it is, after all, the first of the baptismal promises. Well, actually, the active baptismal promises. We promise to do all of these things that you just named. I love how that first promise is built on what connects us. That we're not all alone in all of this. And one of the things that you're talking about is how these prayers are sometimes how these prayers are sometimes ancient. And so there's a way in which these words in the prayer book make us never alone, that we're with all of these people across time. And even if you're isolated, as many of us in the shutdown of the pandemic were, even if you are physically isolated, you are always in the company of thousands of years of people and prayers and lives and witnesses and experiences that come to us through time, through the prayer book traditions, and that we're with those people now and with people who love Jesus then and love Jesus now and struggle and have to meet or have met challenges that we've never had to face. But those persons through the prayers are close to us in time, and they are with us through these text-shared prayers. All right, so I know I said three things, but hey, I think we have the time, so maybe we'll go to four. Uh, let's see. I think the second one was the first one I had in mind before, which is, it's sort of a two-part, so maybe it'll be my second and my third. So my second one is that, like, and this is kind of the question you asked about, like, do we need to read to God? I think kind of gets at this, which is like that worship on Sunday morning and what we do in our worship and in our celebration of the Holy Eucharist and or or in our morning prayer. If that's like what you're I think that it's the same thing for me, whether it's morning prayer that you're doing or Holy Eucharist or whatever, that it's it's an experience. It is meant to be an experience. It's not meant to be. The words of the book on the page, they are not in some ways a be all and end all because I believe what they're really meant to do is to create a space in which we can potentially, so that we can experience God there um, and meet God there or so that God can meet us. And, 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 and the chapter in the book, 
I thought did a great job of talking about that in a way I deeply appreciated. It used this idea, uh, which comes from Celtic spirituality, which is partially why I like it, but I really just deeply appreciated this idea of like a thin place. Um, the interlude for the chapter is called a thin place on Sunday morning. And that idea of a thin place is sort of like, or the, the, the space between us and the divine between us and God or between us and heaven is thin. And you can experience the divine there in that place. And, uh, that is what I think worship is intended to be on a Sunday morning is that a thin space. It's creating uh, an environment where we can experience God in a deeper way or God can meet us and we can get to know God. And I think that maybe sometimes that, I wonder if people think about it that way. I don't know. I don't know that people think about it that way. I, you know, when we look at the new Testament, it's not just like, again, not just like a, theological kind of heady kind of thing, but like a real, a real tangible, important thing about what worship should be for us. And when I think about reading the gospels, I think about the expressions of Jesus's own prayer life and own encounters with God. And I really think that our worship on Sunday morning, we should try to create an environment where people can have those same kinds of experiences. It sounds almost audacious. The same kinds of experiences Jesus had of God the Father, because that's what Jesus is inviting his disciples into. And therefore, I think what he's inviting us into. And so that's a challenge. It's like a really hard thing. Like, is what we do on Sunday morning, inviting people to have those experiences, creating a space where people might be able to experience God in that way. And that could be even like God in a numinal, numinous sort of way of like the fear of God or God's like incredible divine otherness from us or the like closeness and intimacy that God approaches us in or the way we meet God in like the face of a different person um, as we share the peace uh, or the way we taste and see God's grace when we eat the bread and drink the wine. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. I think that that would be my second one would be that it that worship on Sunday morning, including what we pray from our prayer book, that's really all to serve like creating that environment. Your response has me thinking about two things. One is that if we're approaching the text of the prayer book just as a kind of a decoding exercise, then we're not entering into it with the meaning and the depth that we're really supposed to. It reminds me of something that one of my liturgy professors used to say that if you're anywhere near Hogwarts, you're doing it wrong because the idea that you are just saying magic can join syllables and therefore magic things happen. That's actually not what we're up to. And it takes the focus off of God. Anything that pushes in that direction is in some ways denying that it's God who acts. And all of the stuff that we're up to in human holy prayer and community work is supposed to be inviting us into an experience, into the experience of the activity of God, not making God do something just because we said Leviosa or whatever. Prayer is supposed to be an invitation of God into an experience. And if you're not familiar with Midrash, it's a Jewish tradition where you have the black ink of the text, but around that black ink of the text is an infinity of white space in which stories and lives and so on exist. And they're shaped by the shape of the very words of those texts, but the possibilities of um, experience are endlessly, um, like I said, they're infinite. and 
part of what you're saying is in some ways inviting us into seeing the Book of Common Prayer as a similar white space around of ink with white space around it. Um, and that we, our lives and our experiences are butting up against the shape of the ink of that text in that white space, much like that Midrash tradition. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's really, that's really cool. I, um, I love, I like the, if you're, if you're, if you're doing, if it's approaching Hogwarts, you're doing it wrong. I do think it's a really helpful way of thinking about it. Do you know, is it okay if I recommend a different book besides this one too? Yeah. That you made me think of, which is, um, Liturgical Life Principles from uh, Ian Markham, who's the Dean of Virginia Seminary. And the subtitle for that book is How Episcopal Worship Can Lead to Healthy and Authentic Living. And one thing that book does that I think is really cool is it like actually breaks down the Holy Eucharist worship we do on Sunday morning from the prayer book into like a sort of reflection on each step of the way and how it relates to our daily life and our lives as Christians. And like, like that's like the subtitle says facilitating healthy and authentic living, which I think is, that's like a bridge that I would love for folks more often who come to church on Sunday morning to gap, like to, to bridge that gap between like what they do on Sunday morning and their daily healthy and authentic living. Cause that's also what it's about right it's like uh it's it's again not just like doing some magic on sundays but worship uh, and i'll talk about that this one in my third in my third point but worshiping god or as the book that we read here responding to god's blessings um which is the subtitle for this chapter in the book um and then also sending us out into the world to serve the world and to live healthy and authentic lives so that authenticity part you were just saying, it's actually really important. And it's so important, even though and in the face of the fact that the forces of commerce and evil and injustice are constantly working against it, like every single moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so do you want me to give you my third answer? Yeah, let's go for your third answer. So my third answer is related to the second one about it being like to facilitate an experience. And it's kind of like, maybe will sound like the opposite of that. Cause my third answer that I'd like people to know about like worship on Sundays and, and is that it's actually not about our experience. <laughs> so what I mean by that is I, and this is kind of because of my own personal life. Like I am not a lifelong Episcopalian. I came to the prayer book uh, and the Episcopal church as an adult I grew up in an evangelical environment and I went to an evangelical college for undergrad. And so I do think that this is like kind of a, this is like one of the trappings of uh, evangelicalism in my view, and maybe an issue in the American church in general. And that is like kind of making everything about our own personal experience and what kind of feelings we have and what kind of experience we have. So like when I say an ex that, that, that I think, that worship should create an experience where or the environment so that we can meet and experience God. What I don't mean is like worship is all about the feelings we cultivate or have in the moment. And again, this chapter in the book did a really, really great job making that point um, by uh, trying to remember these, these specific examples it talked about, but it talked about like finding God in the mundane and small things. And that's, I think really key um, to understanding this, like, Meaning God doesn't necessarily mean like having some mountaintop feelings of like awe and wonder at God's majesty. It could be like seeing Jesus in the face of 
the person next to me when I share the piece. Or it could be reflecting on worship after the fact that day and the words of the sermon and how that connects to your life. Or, you know, I don't know how it is that you'll meet God in worship, but um, I, I, I don't want people to think that it's about like the feelings that you have or the emotions that you have or that we need to like use worship to kind of conjure those feelings in people or like try to manipulate people's feelings so that they have some experience, some feeling of experience of God. So oftentimes I think that's manipulative and not actually what I think it should do. And, and that's one of the reasons why I like the prayer book, because the prayer book is what it is every single Sunday. We repeat the same words. We say the same things. The fact that it can be boring and mundane, I think actually is what, and this chapter make, I think makes this point really well. That actually is, I think what can create open the door to us like meeting God in it. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that, Jane? I like what you're saying. I think your point about meeting God is really important. And when you first started talking about how you came out of another tradition, I was remembering that there used to be these YouTube videos parroting that whole part of or zone of church life. I think it was called me hymns and they took a whole bunch of church songs and turned them around to being about themselves, yourself, um, which actually wasn't that hard to do. And it really was a really funny thing. And it was funny because of the trueness of it. And I don't know if that tendency is something that's just purely American or purely privileged or modern or West. I'm not even sure that you could isolate it to one space and time because there's certainly some parts of some of the debates about worship in the Hebrew scriptures that certainly seem to be this me versus the everybody debate. But coming back to the other thing you had me thinking about is the way in which liturgy is a mundane thing. We worship through bodies that are mundane things, through bread, which is an everyday thing and a limited substance. And wine is a limited substance as well. And on top of which, Jesus, who we follow, lived and died and rose in a particular place and in a particular time and did particular things and didn't particularly do other things. And it's that very mundaneness, that very incarnate part that um, keeps drawing us back to the mystery of Christ and what we're doing in liturgy is about this Jesus who is both particular and infinite. The infinite infinity of God about the all of the everything and the things that are so beyond our understanding being drawn into this one particular place and time and person. Sometimes we talk about this in liturgy as being the horizontal and the vertical. But worship ultimately is about the eternity and about eternity and drawing us into a deeper relationship with God and Christ and neighbor. And there's a temptation to do that as loudly and showstoppery as we think we could possibly do it. But I honestly don't think I have the energy for every single worship and prayer experience to be extraordinary. That sort of thing would get exhausting. So I'm grateful for the mundaneness and the repetitiveness of a tradition like this. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that if all of our worship experiences were the Mount of Transfiguration, it 
like that's not that that would be overwhelming it it's just not like what it means to be human i think and i think that's why i think the gospels gives a really good like like lens to view this in or like the lens to view it the the pattern for it which is that most of the time in jesus's ministry you know, it was very mundane. It was talking with people. Now, of course, it was miracles, like healing people, but like Jesus touching people, Jesus like using spit and mud to like heal someone, um, you know, breaking bread with people, praying, um, talking with his friends. And and then amidst that, there were there are, amidst the mundane, there were moments of the miraculous and there were moments of experiencing the the, you know, the infinite, as you said, infinite, like the infinite nature of God or God and having this incredibly powerful mountaintop experience of God. But like the, the mountain of transfiguration is one step along the way. And then so is the cross and so is the resurrection. So, you know, I think that that's important for us to remember that most of the Christian journey is going to be every day. It's going to be like, a regular day and it's going to be that daily choice to like follow Jesus's teaching, follow him as our Lord and master. And, and I think that worship sustains us for that uh, by reorienting us on Sundays toward God as we worship and praise and give thanks to God for everything, all the blessings of our life. And um, as our response to those blessings and then sends us back out to do it again <laughs> every day, uh, until we gather again as God's people to worship. I think that you were going this way actually for what's probably going to end up be our bonus point, our extra point, I guess. And that's sending us out into the world. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that sounds like a good, I think that's an important fourth bonus point. Yeah. So tell us, what does being sent out into the world do, how does that connect exactly to a book of prayers and people who gather for worship, usually in a particular place, even if they're gathering in that particular place, both on site and online? Yeah, oh, it's such a good question. Well, <laughs> how to answer that? I think that I, the way I like to view it is that the celebration of the whole Eucharist on Sundays that we do, where we are fed by God's own self and God's own life. That is sort of, to me, the way we are re-nourished week to week in our baptism. When we are baptized, and now a lot of people are baptized as infants, and so they may not actually themselves get to receive the whole Eucharist in their baptism. But bat but Eucharist is the, the end of the baptismal liturgy. We are baptized and join the body of Christ um, and enter into new life in him. And then we sort of culminate that covenant, uh, by receiving the bread and wine of that new covenant. And so to me, what we do on Sundays is, um, the way we're nourished and sustained in our baptism. So I, I say all that because I think that the daily life of the Christian is expressing, um, expressing and living into our baptism every single day, the promises we make in our baptism, the new life in Christ we receive in our baptism, that grace and forgiveness, and that mission 
that we're given in our baptism to continue Jesus's mission in the world every single day through the mundane things that we do, through simple acts of forgiveness and love, through uh, forgiving our enemies and praying for people that persecute us, uh, for working for justice and peace and reconciliation in the world. And that goes to like choices people make at their job on Wednesday morning um, to like, act, like their ch your choice and how to spend your money and your choice on how to spend your time. It's like all of that. And so I think that worship on Sundays kind of renews us and strengthens us and it reorients us towards God. Again, I, I said a couple of times that, you know, in the book chapter title emphasizes it, that worship is responding to God's blessings. And when we respond to God's blessings with worship and praise and thanksgiving, um, it just reorients us to like that idea that, None of this is of our own. We that we do, that all of this is by God's grace, and um, only by God's grace do we go forward and continue on. And so, yeah. So I, I, that maybe that's a convoluted answer, <laughs> but um, yeah. I actually don't think that's a convoluted answer at all, and it reminds me of how much I love having you as a friend and a conversation partner. It's a beautiful, beautiful answer, and one that actually shifts really well into my final question, my wrap-up question. Every time I'm doing one of these, I'm going to ask the guest, what is a task that a listener could do? Um, we do a lot of heady stuff in these questions, and I really believe in the priority of practices. So what's a task that a listener could do um, having to do with this book of common prayers and liturgy and so on? And something that someone could do, whether they are a returner to the Episcopal Church after a long time away, or someone who's been doing this for a long time, but it's never really connected Sunday morning to personal depth and growth or maybe someone who's totally new to this entire way of being Christian. So the question is, is there a task that you would give someone to live into this connection of the Book of Common Prayer and liturgy? Okay, if I were to give one task for folks, and and does, is it implied, maybe it's not implied, but is it implied by the question that this person is currently going to worship on Sunday mornings in their in their life? In some way, yes, but perhaps given how much changed as soon as we hit the shutdown, some of us have transitioned into this hybrid era of being the church, sometimes being on site and sometimes being online. So my answer is like a maybe three-fourths yes and a one-fourth participating in new ways. Okay, that that one kind of makes my task a little challenging, but maybe not impossible. So, so if the the, the one task that comes to my mind is that um, you know on Sundays we in our in our Episcopal tradition in the way we worship on Sundays we um, make the confession a confession of sin. We get on our knees typically to do that, and we confess our sins um, against God and our neighbor. And we hear the words of promise of absolution spoken to us. And then we immediately share a sign of God's peace with other people. And that sharing the sign of God's peace, a lot of churches, including my own, a lot of congregations, including my own, they use it as their opportunity to like say hi to everybody on Sunday morning, which I think is important because I think that that's a fellowship that I said before. I think that's important fellowship. But 
uh, I think that what's sometimes lost is that the piece is really the culmination of the making confession and receiving absolution because it's the um, it's essentially the extension of that reconciliation and forgiveness to everyone around us. It's saying I'm at peace with you um, and it's declaring God's peace to one another. So that my task would be for folks, whether that's if that's in your worship on Sunday at church um, or if that's like if you are worshiping virtually and so you need to like really make some sort of effort to do this, it would be to go into sharing the peace the next time you have the opportunity to do that in your worship context, to approach that with the mindset of this is the extension of the reconciliation offered to me by God in confession and absolution that I am extending now to everyone around me. And so maybe if you're worshiping virtually or if you're worshiping in some other way on Sundays, that um, means you need to find someone whether through a phone call or a Zoom call or a text message to um, offer God's peace to. And I'm not even saying, I mean, it would be really cool if somebody was like, you know what? I haven't forgiven somebody. I'm going to go do that because that is what the peace invites us to do. If you can do that and that's you, then that's, that's it. There you go. That's, that's, that would be the best thing. Um, if you can't think of anyone like that, you can still offer God's peace to someone um, as part of this task. Uh, and if you're worshiping in a congregation on Sunday morning in person, approach the peace with that mindset and see how it how like it changes your reflection on the or or your experience on a Sunday morning to uh, to see it as kind of bridging the gap between the confession and absolution and meeting one another at God's table to receive communion. Wow, you know, I know that in my experience, if I've looked around a room and thought, gosh, I actually really don't have anyone to do some deep reconciliation with, to really seek this true peace with, that's its own revelatory kind of moment. But there have also been times when that's definitely been my experience that I definitely needed to reconcile with someone else in the room. And so um, that act, that act of seeking and offering forgiveness, it shifts my heart towards God's peace. And it completely, completely changes the experience of the Eucharistic table. And the Eucharistic table is supposed to be about change. And it's supposed to be about authentic feeling and forgiveness and reconciliation with real people. So, of course, it uh, dives into that deep experience of what it means to be um, both followers of a liturgical tradition and users of the Book and Common Prayer. What a lovely invitation. I actually expect it might be a little bit hard for some folks. So thank you once again, Ben, um, for this call, this call to exchanging the peace and for joining me, joining me for this first episode of trying to answer these right questions. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm going to summarize the four points that we've talked about. Four points trying to cover something as monumental as the Book of Common Prayer in liturgy. And so your four main points were, number one, that this is rooted in the baptismal covenant. Our first promise of the baptismal covenant is to continue in the apostles' teaching, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers, and that 
this is that way in which we connect the ancient and the modern and string together human lives across time and strengthen these connections. So number one, about strengthening connections through the first baptismal promise. Number two um, is that we're nurturing an experience. We're not just decoding and we're not saying a magic spell and we're not even filling out a form. Number three is that it's about this connection of the mundane and the astonishing, that the incarnation of God in the life of a guy named Jesus is exactly connected to this tradition that has a physical book that's calling on the ultimate and on the infinite. And it's a tradition that's both cosmically grand and everyday routine at the very same time. Your fourth and final point was that it sends us out, sends us out because we're not done. Worship doesn't finish the game. We're not checking. Um, It sends us out. We haven't checked off any sort of form. We've been fed to go out and do the work that um, we're supposed to be doing in the world. And God's work will continue beyond the doors in our hearts. It'll continue in the neighborhoods and we will continue to be loved and share love and change for good. Hallelujah. Well, as I've already said, Ben, this has been great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we're going to wrap up with a prayer. And since we've been talking about the prayer book, we're definitely going to use a prayer from the prayer book. So from the Book of Common Prayer on page 816, prayer number eight, the prayer for the mission of the church. Let us pray. Ever-living God, whose will it is that all should come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Inspire our witness to him that all may know the power of his forgiveness and the hope of his resurrection. Who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.